church. My name is Jim, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, and I've been powerless with my struggle over alcohol and cocaine addiction for most of my life. I grew up in a rough neighborhood on the east side of Joliet, where you didn't have to go very far to find trouble. I was raised in a Christian family with a loving mother and father, attending church every Sunday morning for Sunday school and church, and going back on Sunday evenings for church also. My mother was the organist at our church, so we spent a lot of time there. Also, attending Awanas in my younger years and the Christian Youth Center with Harv Russell in my teenage years. I was introduced to marijuana at the age of 10. Then when I was 13, we moved to the west side of Joliet, where in high school, I started in with the alcohol and going to parties. Throughout high school, partying and sports were all I cared about. And I believe this was the beginning of Satan's stranglehold on my life. When I started college, I was introduced to cocaine and various other drugs. It always started with the alcohol. With my addictive personality and my extremist attitude, the word powerless was just an understatement. After college, I went straight into the construction industry and I got married a year later and my son Zach was born. I was very good at being a functioning alcoholic and cocaine addict, but the consequences of this lifestyle would eventually catch up to me. So after 14 years of marriage, my wife got fed up with my alcohol and drug use and divorced me. I lost her, my house, but most importantly, my relationship with my son would never be the same. Being single again, I started hitting the alcohol and drugs harder than ever, getting DUI after DUI. Getting arrested had become a regular occurrence in the insanity of my life. Finally, on March 17th of 2011, which was St. Patrick's Day, the best thing that could have happened to me happened. I got arrested again. One week later, my sister came to visit me. She told me that I was in denial, but of course I denied it. Her and her husband, who was a pastor, had started a Celebrate Recovery program at their church in Wisconsin. Before she left, she gave me her Celebrate Recovery Bible, which I took back to my cell and started reading. God intervened and brought me out of the denial that I had been in for over 30 years. So I got down on my hands and knees on that cold jail cell floor. I cried out to God, I don't want to live like this anymore. Please take control of my life. Lord, I repent of my sins and I ask for your forgiveness. On March 18th, I will celebrate nine years of being clean and sober. God is so, so good. Through Celebrate Recovery, God has given me a new life with hope and a future. And I have dedicated the rest of my life to God and to helping others in recovery through my life, life's experiences, strengths, and hopes. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you, Jim. So we're, we're, we're jumping into a series that's actually tapping into a reality that we see in one of the key ministries in our church, Celebrate Recovery. Um, one of the greatest things that, that, that um, NBC does, um, and it's not us, it's, it's this, this amazing 
ministry within our church that actually started something. When we say real with God, real with each other, real in the world, we're talking about authenticity. Celebrate Recovery is one of the key uh, ministries that's helped us do that, to be honest. And so one of the greatest things that this church could do is to export into the community people who are honest about their hurts and their habits and their hang-ups. And so we decided, like, we need to do it. We need to do a series. We're focusing in on the key principles that are taught throughout Celebrate Recovery because they get those principles from somewhere. In fact, it's not just Celebrate Recovery. If you've ever heard, had anyone you've known go through Alcoholics Anonymous, my brother uh, Nathan got sober in AA. They're deriving their principles, each one of those steps, from the same place. It's actually the same place that Martin Luther King derived a lot of his ethics and principles on how to engage conflict and resistance. It's a place where even Gandhi, who was not a Christian, looked at for inspiration. And it's this one particular sermon given by one particular person, and that person is Jesus. Jesus chose a forgettable hill to communicate an unforgettable message. Like if, if the people, there's a lot of people who just came from, back from Israel. They went on an Israel trip, and they've been to this hill. And there's a really cool church up on this hill, but really it's just a boring hill that's growing banana plants today with a view of the, of the Sea of Galilee. That's all it is. Jesus chose a boring set of hills to communicate a game changer of a reality. And to those who listened to him, to those who took him seriously, in the first century of the 21st century, they experienced something profound. Because what Jesus was communicating in this ethic of the Sermon on the Mount um, was something that, that was in contrast to the kingdom that they saw. It was like a kingdom ethic. He's communicating a new reality that he, as the king, is ushering in. This was going to be starkly contrasted with the Roman Empire that was the government at hand. So the thing that te Jesus was teaching was in conflict with the government around him. Jesus wasn't saying, if you vote for me, then you're going to see something in line with what we see in Rome. It was not that the case in any way, shape, or form. But it was also a departure from what they understood at the, with, within the religion they grew up with. The religion they grew up with, this seemed like this went against in some way, shape, or form, or was a departure. And Jesus was making that clear. I am coming to fulfill. I am coming to fulfill everything in the past, and I'm ushering in an ethic, a reality check, a way of dealing with life's failures and your own personal failures through a different lens. He's not saying, if you do what I say, your circumstances in life are going to get better. They're going to change. He says instead, if you listen to what I say, every single circumstance you have in your life, good or bad, will be seen through a different filter that will give you the ability to thrive as someone within my kingdom with me at the leadership. These are game-changing realities. And the thing that, the reason, I want to start this service off with prayer because so many of us in this room right here are in need of a game-changer moment. We, we've done life a certain way and we've gotten into habits, we've gotten into, into like a, just a rhythm that's not sustainable. And it's not. And as we come to God's word, we realize the reason it's not sustainable is because it's in conflict with the very teachings of our creator, the one who designed you to be you. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like us to stand, if you could stand right now, and I'm going to pray I'm going to pray over you that God gives you a self-awareness, that he gives you a sensitivity, a sen he sensitizes your heart to hear what God wants you to hear. And that anything that I'm, I'm, like, that I'm saying that's a, a departure from what Jesus wants you to hear, that you'll forget it. But then I'm going to give you a couple of moments just to ask God yourself, Lord, open up my ears. Open up my mind to things that I might have been shutting my ears to that I need to surrender over to you right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray over this congregation, this gathering. It's super easy to think that we were in control of getting ourselves here this morning. 
that we got off work, or we accepted the invitation from a friend or a family member, or we just wanted to get our life back together, or this is just what we do each and every Sunday morning, and that we were in charge, God, but we know that there are no coincidences. We also know, God, that you are the one who orchestrates these moments to bring us to your word, to your gospel. So Lord, I pray that your gospel breaks our heart, breaks our resistance, it gives us eyes to see our life the way that you see our life, and that we leave here changed. The more truer us that you've crafted us to be than the saboteur that we live with each and every day that we look at in the mirror. Right now as we're praying, just ask God to open up your heart and open up your mind, to open up your ears, to help you hear what he wants you to hear. To be challenged by what he wants to challenge you with. Lord God, we ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. The passage that I'd like you guys all to turn, about, turn to, the one that I was referring to, is Matthew chapter 5. And it starts off in, ch in chapter 5, verse 1, this way. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that, that is so um, important for us to understand is that Jesus is, he, again, he's gathering the people around him who are his, his followers, the people who are serious. Like these are people who are like, look, I, I want, I'm, I'm interested in the miracles. This guy's doing crazy stuff all the time, but I actually want to hear what he has to say. And he's kind of, he's talking to his inner circle of disciples and all these other people are listening in. And he's giving, again, this game-changing ethic. And he's basically like talking to this big old youth group. And he's saying, okay, we're going on a mission trip, and I'm going to prepare you for this mission trip. If you're going to follow me on this trip, there's going to be crazy stuff that's going to happen. You're going to have to deal with the failure of the world around you and your own personal failure. And so I'm going to prepare you for that. I'm not saying if you follow me, things are going to get easier. Things are going to get crazy. But if you follow me and you start living in my kingdom ethic, there is a game-changing reality if you listen to what I say. And he starts giving us these blessed are the, blessed are the. Now again, if you grew up in church land, that's white noise. You've heard that so many times, it's just like, wah. But you need to realize, oh man, Jesus is preparing his followers to live out the ethic he's called us into that he alone can equip us for. It, it, you, I've talked about this before at church, but it's very much like going on like, like a journey, right? And, and, and when we're on this journey, it's something where the problem with following Jesus that he's actually trying to kind of do an inventory of, like taking care of, is all the stuff that we tack on to ourselves that make it difficult, that kind of like um, make it hard for us to continue walking along the way. Like the first thing is, is our outlook. 
The outlook is one of the first things that starts to drag on our ability to follow Jesus with the gusto that he's given us. Um, outlook is basically something that we clip on um, to our world that is kind of how, like, our motivating, like, our, our operating system. Like, a lot of people, their operating system is, is kind of like, uh, I'm, I'm a people pleaser. I, 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 wanna, I want people to be happy. I want people around me. To, how many of you would say, I'm a people pleaser? Okay. How many of you really just don't lo- like people? Okay. All right. All right. Outlook is basically that. Like I, I, and for some of you, it's like, like, it's not people. I just need to prove myself. Like, I was told my whole life I'm not worth much. I, and it's like my outlook is I need to, I need, I'm going to be the hardest worker. I'm going to be a provider. I, I'm, I'm going to be someone who's climbing the ranks. I'm going to get the best grades. I'm going to be in all the right clubs. I'm going to have a good friend group. I'm going to be someone who's popular. I'm going to be someone who's, who's talented or someone who can actually, because look, honestly, I have been told so many times in my life that I'm worth nothing and that I'm stupid and that I, that I'm going to prove them wrong. I mean, even if it's in a small way, I'm going to go through my whole life. And so we do that. And that, like, that becomes how we go from being a kid to being a teenager to being, to being a, a young adult. And we go into life looking at our outlook of, am I someone with friends? Am I someone with, with, with accolades and, and achievements? But that stresses you out, man. That burns you out. And, and over time, you realize, I need to... I need some type of an escape because this is so cumbersome and over and over and over, I need some type of escape to actually just take, you know, the edge off. You have no idea the type of people that I have to work for or the type of, like, um, expectations they have at my school, like, academically. It's just too hard. And so, like, because of all of this, I got to come over here and start to, like, filling this with something that just takes the edge off a little bit. So for some of us, it's like, oh, you know, honestly, I just need a few. I just need a couple beers or a couple glasses of wine. Six, seven, a couple glasses of wine. And I, because honestly, this is, I just need something to take it down a little bit. This is so all-consuming. This is driving me every single day. Like, I, like, seriously, I just need to be enough that this over here is, I gotta have something to take me down a notch. And so maybe it's that, or maybe for you it's video gaming, because that, that's an escape. I don't have to think about all this. I can actually just be over here. For some of you, it's, it's Amazon. Like, Amazon is just like the best... You just click, one click, and it's done. You didn't even give anyone cash, or did you? And all of a sudden, a smile shows up on your doorstep two days later. And it's like, how great is that? And so, yeah, I might be buying a lot right now, okay? But, and, or for some of you, it's like, look, I just need to have, like, some time to myself just to do a little bit of Netflix in, okay? I got to just give me a little bit of Netflix time, just like, you know, seven, eight, nine hours, and that'll be fine for me. Because I'm going to start with one episode, but the, here, the problem is, is that I finished the, I only was going to watch one, and then it automatically reloaded the second one, and who was I to stop it? And it, it, it left with such a cliffhanger, I had to. And so, like, I, I pour all those hours into that. It's, for some of us, it's like, it's social media. Like, I'll just, you'll sit there, and you're just like, I'm just, I'm just going to go down the thread. I'm just going to take five minutes. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe she's doing that. Oh, my can you believe that they, oh, I, I can't believe that I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something. And then all of a sudden, then you, all, several hours go by, you're like, I poured four hours into this. Now, it was an escape because I wasn't thinking about this. And that's actually a good thing. For some of us, it's pornography. It's like, you know what? I don't have the connection. I don't, I'm not in a romantic relationship. Or I'm in a romantic relationship that's not fulfilling. And I just, there's something about the instantaneous reality of, of Having that, I feel for a couple of moments complete. Now, I'm not proud of that. I'm just saying that, that there's an escape to that. that I'm, and, and 
to be honest, it's become kind of like a, a pressure gauge. Each one of my escapes, even relationships, like, like I, I feel empty and I'm so stressed out. I feel incomplete. I just need to have a relationship. If I have a relationship, that's going to be the thing that will help me escape all of the terror that this provides. But the problem is that whenever you make a makeshift savior from this, taking good things and making them ultimate things, it's always a bad thing. And ultimately, it ends up with shame. Shame, oh, I don't understand, but shame is sometimes the noisiest voice in my head. Shame is, and maybe it was the church I grew up in. Maybe it's just I feel guilty all the time because of, like, I'm always thinking I'm doing something bad. But shame is this reality of, of everything that people said about me that I felt like I was running away from. It's reminding me it's true. Yeah, you know what? You are a terrible person. I can't believe that you even thought that. You know what? You are someone who can't keep it together. You've tried to stop the bad things in your life, and it just keep on happening. And every time, every time, the shame bucket just gets louder and louder and louder. And even when you can't see it, you can't just throw yourself back into your work and back into your escape. It's still there, and it's still making noise. And sometimes it, it comes up when someone else fails you. And you're reminded again of your shame. And that would be bad enough. Except for it's not just the things that I've done that I'm ashamed of that drives me into just despair. It's not just that I failed me. You failed me. And that makes me bitter. Bitterness is one of the things that is the most heavy things that we drag through this life. What ends up happening with bitterness, it probably started when you were a kid. Like something happened. It was between your dad or your mom or a sibling, but bitterness is something that you just like for a while there, you're holding on to it, but then you want to let go of it. You're like, I'm over it. I'm over it. It's all forgiven. It's fine. Whatever. Whatever. Fine. But then all of a sudden, the next time you show up for the family gathering, this, you're reminded of the fact you're still dragging this around. Or the next time someone fails you, and then you blow up at them, and you're like, you're asking yourself the question, why is it that I'm freaking out about at, at this person? Why am I bringing so much rage and energy to this situation? And you realize it's not even this person that you're angry with. If you were honest, it's the fact that you're still, and this is really, really a heavy burden to drag through life, but it's there. And you're just like, you explode. You go from zero to 60, not just because of the people around you, but because you're still dragging the bitterness behind you. And this gets tiring. You can almost deal with it. You can almost actually address these issues. But there's a problem. There's something that makes it incredibly difficult to actually deal with that. And that's denial. Denial brings you to your knees to help you realize, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, honestly, denial, compared to the other stuff in my life, not that big. I'd admit to you, this is kind of awkward to hold up denial, but I won't. Denial is a, is a self-protective mechanism that we learned as kids. Like you were tired of being told that you were stupid. Like, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Stop crying. And all of a sudden you learn, like, I need to, I need to protect myself because I don't want to be that person that's always falling apart or being perceived as being stupid or falling apart. And so like you get this like insulation as a kid and you learn, you bring it into your junior high years and your high school years. They're like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. And, and when someone explodes on you or calls you out at work, you're like, look, I, di I didn't do anything wrong. I'm totally, look, there's a lot of other people that are way more messed up than me. There's people that are making way more terrible decisions than I'm making. This, 
and all of a sudden, denial just keeps on growing. Look, I don't drink as much as Eric. Eric drinks way more than me. Hey, you know what? Every family's messed up, okay? So stop just pretending like we're the only ones with issues. We're fine. You, you know what? Here's the thing. It doesn't hurt me that bad when they say those things to me. I'm fine. I'm fine. And you come up to me and you ask me, how are you doing? You know what I'm going to tell you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Jim, ask me if this is a problem. Ask me, is this a problem? No! And the thing is, is that we keep on going through life this way, and the problem is, is that we actually make our way into being functional with this. We're like, we get like, okay, this is a lot to go through life with. Every time I show up to a business issue or deal, I'm trucking all this. People don't see, but it's there. Every time I go to a family Christmas gathering, I'm bringing all this into the room. Everywhere I go, this whole cumbersome thing. But you know what? I'm, then I'm like, but I'm actually doing okay. Like, I just got a promotion. So it's like, look what I can do. I can actually make my way through this world, and I'm functioning. I had an uncle. He had half of this garbage in his life, and he couldn't function at all. He couldn't even show up to a family function. But I'm family functioning like a boss. My life is out of control. I'm overserved. I'm underslept. I'm overstressed. I'm overcaffeinated, overcommitted, and strung out on social media. I was going someplace with that. Oh, and we still went to Disney last year. So who's the father of the year now, baby? I only had two meltdowns on that trip. I'm doing pretty great. And compared to my old man, I mean, this is, I'm living the dream. And the hardest part is that I'm a Christian. It's really hard to get through those doors with all of this. Because it's loud and it's heavy. It's hard to get into these pews with all of this. But the hardest part of the whole thing is I look around at all of you and I realize why I'm silent about all of this. Because you don't have the issues that I have. You're doing just fine. I'm the only one who has to go through life like this. And so I learn. The best thing I could do is to make myself look pretty spiritual, maybe show up, maybe show up to some Bible studies. But as far as like, like actually talking about the stuff that's weighing me down, oh, no way, man. I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to be the one who's sounding like I'm this messed up. And Jesus is speaking to people in the first century who are dragging first century versions of all this. And he's speaking to 21st century people who are dragging 21st century versions of this. And he's saying, in my kingdom, this is not necessary. In fact, the key to dealing with this is actually the very first principle that Celebrate Recovery derives from Matthew 5.3. And that very first principle is this. Principle one is this. I realize that I'm not God. And then when I realize I'm not God, I admit that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing, and my life is unmanageable. You know, the craziest thing is that in life, everyone in your world is trying to tell you that you can do it. You can do it. In fact, Nike's telling you, just do it. Just do it. There's a lot of wisdom in that, but when we think about the stuff that we're actually dragging through life, I just can't. Jesus is saying the most powerful woman the most powerful man is the one that recognizes that they are powerless to affect the greatest change in their life. 
Because what we end up doing on the flip side of that is like, you know what? This is going to be the year. This is going to be the year that I'm actually going to deal with this stuff. I'm actually going to change this year. I say that every year. Jesus says, you want the key? You're not God. Stop pretending like you're the fourth person of the Trinity. Realize that you're not God and admit that you are powerless. There's such great power in realizing you are powerless to control your tendency to do the wrong things. And my life is unmanageable. You know what? If you could have changed, you would have changed by now. But you're still struggling, right? Here's the crazy thing. When we deal with that, all of a sudden we can start look at it, looking at our things that we're using as our escape differently. We're like, we can actually say there's things that I can invest my time in, but I don't have to be like devoted to it like it's my Savior because it's not. Jesus is my Savior. That is not going to be my source of power. It's not. I am powerless to affect change. Then I'm also able to, to correct my outlook. I'm not living in such a way that I'm just trying to live for other people because I realize that that's not going to be my power source. Their approval or, or, or their accolades can never be my power source. And the crazy thing is that when I'm actually humble, I'm able to address shame like never, ever before. It, does, it no longer has the burden that it once had. Does it still spike every once in a while? Totally does. Totally does. But I can actually be the type of person that can realize I'm powerless to do any of this stuff. But in Jesus, in his kingdom, I don't have to let the sin that so easily entangles me be the thing that's driving me anymore. I can actually start letting go of the things that hold so tight. And that's how we live. We go through life. All right, put it, put it down, put it down. There are some things that are easier to get rid of than others. Like, I don't know if I could let go of this. Because if I let go of this, I don't even know how I got it. But I've programmed every day of my life with this running over my brain. That I've made it foundational to my outlook on the people in my life. Because if I let go of this, it's almost like it's saying what happened back then wasn't a big deal. And it was a big deal. Or what he did or she did didn't actually damage me, but it did damage me. Or, or, or saying that if I forgive that person, then all of a sudden, like, we, we're going to be best friends. And we're not, that's not even healthy for that to happen. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the fact that we need to recognize our powerlessness to be free of these things. But he is the one who has the power. Matthew 5.3 puts it this way. It says, happy, happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. Your Bible uh, may translate that blessed. The word um, makarios, makarios, makarios is the word in Greek. And it, the word means blessed or happy. But, it, but it, happy seems kind of trite. This is the crazy thing. In, in America, um, it, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? That's right. And you know what we do to pursue our happiness? We fill that escape bucket. Relationships, riches, Freedom, it's awesome, man. Like that, but the problem is, is that the things that make us happy in this world that we pursue our happiness towards ultimately leave us enslaved when we make those our savior. When we're making this as our escape to get out of something, all of a sudden that burden becomes so heavy. Jesus says, you want to know who, the, the word, that word for happy or blessed means the happiest. You want to know who, who, who's the happiest, who's pursuing happiness, the best, the, the boss, happy pursuer? They're the ones who know that they're not spiritually sufficient or, or, or self-sufficient in life, they're spiritually what? 
Who wants that? I mean, like, how many of you went to high school and you had, like, spirit week? Where it's like, yay, us, spirit. And this is not saying uh, people who are like, boo, us, we stink. But what it's saying is this. Happy are those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt. That I have a spiritual bankruptcy. In the bank of my heart to affect change, there are no dollars. I've got nothing. And Jesus says the person who actually realizes that fact, because it is a fact, is the one who will be happiest. You are the happiest when you know you are powerless. That you cannot affect change that you want to affect. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. The expositor's commentary talked about this and put it this way. The kingdom of heaven is not given on the basis of race, earned merits, the military zeal and prowess of zealots, or the wealth of Zacchaeus. It is given to the poor, the despised publicans, the prostitutes, those who are so poor they know they can offer nothing and do not try. They cry for mercy and they alone are heard. You want to know the worst, one of, the, one of our greatest handicaps in America, spiritually speaking, is that we're so stinking wealthy. We're self-sufficient. We don't need. And we've convinced ourselves that we are the source of our riches and the source of our happiness and we're the master of our destiny. And we're miserable. We're ending our life. We're doing anything we can to escape reality because we just can't deal anymore. And Jesus speaks into that and says, happy are the poor in spirit. You want to be happy? The happiest happy? Recognize your spiritual bankruptcy. But you don't stop there because the next verse he says, happy, again, the, the happiest happy people are those who mourn for they will be comforted. I, I remember thinking that that was one of the dumbest verses in the Bible when I was a kid. Like that makes zero sense. It's like saying, happy are the sad. You want to know who's really fast? The slow people. That made, that made no sense to me. Like, I remember thinking, like, that doesn't, that, that doesn't compute. But what they're talking about is this. Um, that mourning is like a Hebrew concept of mourning, not just like a, I feel depressed today. Mourning was a self-identifier of, look, we are the chosen people of God. This is first century. We're the chosen people of God. He's given us a section of land that is our nation. It's our people's nation. And look at us. We have rebelled against God over and over again. We said, yeah, I hear what you're doing, God, and you hear what you're saying, but I'm going to go the opposite direction. Eventually, God said, you want independence of me? Here it is. And now we're under oppression, the oppressive occupation of Rome. We don't like this. We, don't, we, we feel like idiots. We feel like scum of the earth. And here we are. Look at where we've gotten to. That kind of mourning is this kind of like self-realization of where I'm at right now, where we are right now. And what he's saying here is happy, the people who are happiest are the people who get to that place of going, whoa, this is not good. Not only do I realize that I'm not God and I'm powerless to affect change, I'm realizing, whoa, it is really bad. And I'm, I'm actually being completely honest about that right now. The, the second principle within Celebrate Recovery that comes from that verse right there, it says this earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him, and that he has the power to help me recover. So what the first step said was, like, I don't have the power because I'm not God. This one says there is a God, and not, he's not some deist God, or he's not some force of, of nature that's out there. He's actually a very personal God. This takes you from being an atheist to an agnostic to a theist to a follower of Jesus, because you're recognizing that not only did God do all of this stuff in this world, but he created you, and he knows you, and he loves you. He loves you. And because he loves you, his desire is to see you experience the freedom and liberty that only he could provide in recovering. 
and those hurts and those habits and those hang-ups that sin has affected in your life. He has the power to help you recover. So there's this guy, Paul. We talk about Paul a lot because he's written, he wrote so much in the New Testament, but he did not believe Jesus was God. Total atheist with regard to that fact. And then he meets Jesus. Flips the whole script. And all of a sudden, Paul, the former atheist to Jesus, is a follower of Jesus. And Paul is coming to Jesus as someone who's not like a lot of the other people Jesus hung out with. Jesus hung out with people who were the prostitutes, who knew how much they needed God. Paul, flip side of that. He's like, you know what? God's lucky to have me. I am like a Pharisee of Pharisees. I do all the right stuff. I do all the right laws from Leviticus. I'm like a king of it. In fact, I kind of boast at how awesomely strong I am in faith. And then he meets Jesus and he realized how wrong he was. And then he starts talking differently. And he says this about what Jesus said to him. He says this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient. My grace is enough. Like, you have a need, my grace fills that need. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your ability to get over your problems by yourself. My power is made perfect in your ability to keep on getting better and better each and every day because you've got the gumption to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Nope. My power is made perfect. In what? Whoa. We don't do that. Christians don't do that. We don't admit weakness. It's like admitting that we have a spiritual problem. Paul says that God's power in us, Christ's power in us, is made not just good or okay or decent, but perfect. It's made perfect when, if and only when, you get to the humble place of stop living in denial and actually admit weakness. In your weakness, like I'm struggling in my marriage, like I'm, I'm having a difficult time with this, like I don't know how I'm going to keep this together. Like, I, I, I struggle with anxiety that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I know that I'm feeding a lot of that. Like, like there's weakness inside of me that, that keeps me going back to the same saviors that are allowing me to escape the, the hamster wheel of my life, whether I'm in junior high, high school, or 75 years old. I'm weak. And Paul says, bingo. Now you can experience the power of God because you've realized that you're not God. And only God is God. And that his power is sufficient there, listen to how Paul responds now. This guy who did his whole life of, of pulling off this, this faux spirituality of like, I'm all that and I'm perfectly fine because of all the, the ways that I obey God. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Like if you knew that weakness, admitting your weaknesses was the secret sauce to becoming happy, you would do it. If you knew that, that admitting your weaknesses was the connection that, that God's powers made perfect in you, you would do it all the time. And Paul's like, bingo, that's exactly what I do. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. Now, again, that's counterintuitive to anyone, any American, but certainly any American Christian. We don't do that very well. This is what we do. I used to struggle with sin decades ago. But Jesus got a hold of my life, and ever since then, not a once. It's been amazing. I'm so strong, and I feel bad for you. That's what we do. As Christians, we do that. We are, we are boasting of our strength, not our weakness. What if, what if this church, what if we actually started getting honest with each other? 
Like, this is why we need groups, because it's very difficult and awkward if you just started shouting out your weaknesses while I'm preaching. That'd be weird. But the reason that we are real with God, the, the action step for being real with God is that we gather and we worship God together. That's our community step. And then we are real with each other, where we can actually sit in groups, in living rooms, and in rooms in this building, where we can actually say, hold on, i got to be honest about something. My marriage is really struggling right now. I don't know if we're going to make it. Hey, i got to be honest right now. I'm really, really battling some things that I'm guessing are flirting with addiction, if not completely addiction. Hey, there's things that I am super embarrassed to even share, but I at least want to just tell you that I need your prayer because I'm, I'm someone who's struggling. What if we, like, actually talked about that the way we talk about our strengths, like the things that we want to tell people to make them think higher of us? That's what Paul did. And then Paul said, here's the key to how you do that. In, in Romans chapter 15, he says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. He just said Christ's power is made perfect in your weaknesses. That means that the way that we accept one another is we look at them in their weaknesses and don't go, okay, that's offsides. I can't possibly be close to you or connected to you because you're someone who struggles. I mean, I may struggle, but you have no idea about it. But I'm going to keep my, you at arm's distance. He said, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. I want to challenge you that if you are not part of a group, a real-life group at this church, or whether it's, it's, it's Master's Men or one of the women's groups or, or Celebrate Recovery or, or LifeBridge, we believe in groups from nursery all the way up to like 70 and 80-year-olds and up because we think that groups are necessary for you to be honest to do just that. What if we started to do that? You know what would happen? You'd experience a game-changer in your life, in your marriage, in the way that you work, Way that you go to school, your outlook on life. You started to brag your weaknesses and depend on Jesus for the strength. And you did that with other believers. So, so this Thursday, I want to invite you. If you're someone who's like, honestly, yeah, there are some things that I need to work through. Celebrate Recovery is for anyone with hurts, habits, and hang-ups. That means anyone in this room that's breathing. This is something where, we, where you get a chance to finally be honest. And the white noise of the Beatitudes start to come into full color. Every Thursday night, dinner's at 6, program's at 7. If you can't make it this week, come the following week, but come this week. And get a chance to take your first initial steps. One of the things that is, is cool about pretty much any recovery program is that they picked up this prayer that was written in the 1900s by this Reformed pastor. He had some weird views and some other things, but like he wrote this prayer that just spoke into the reality of what we have in Jesus that in this world, you know what, everyone's after the pursuit of happiness, but Jesus never promised us that, that the type of happiness the world affords with anything that we can escape into. He offered us something better. We can go through this life reasonably happy, knowing that he's going to make us ultimately complete in the next. What I'd like us to do, just closing out the service, is to say that prayer. Um, and most of us know the beginning of it because you've seen it in movies if you haven't heard it from AA or some other type of thing. But the serenity prayer actually goes through some amazing theology in the middle and the end of it that we oftentimes don't get. So what I'd like us to do is to stand. We're not a church that recites a whole lot of prayers together, but this is one that's got some awesome teeth to it that drive home the reality of what Jesus was communicating on that forgettable hill with such an unforgettable message. Let's say this together. God... Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, 
accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Church, the reality of what Jesus is communicating is a game changer. Are you ready for that? Are you open to that? I want to challenge you to stop by that CR table if you have questions about this Thursday. But let us all step into the reality of what Jesus has promised us when we're walking in step with him. Amen? Amen. Amen. See you next week.